coming up on Life is a Festival. And I think it's one of our responsibilities as human people to find ways to enter into reciprocity with more than the human world, right? And that's kinship, as I talked about, both animate and animate. Um, And I think we can do that through a number of things, whether it's gratitude, ceremony, really understanding the traumas and the challenges that came before us that our ancestors experienced. And I think that a lot of the current challenges that we have is because folks aren't understanding the interconnectedness of human and natural systems. Um, And I think when they start to center kinship and understand that, they'll understand that this responsibility is more than just this individual view. It's, It's greater than us. It's seven generations. It's the ancestors who came before us and those who come after us. So that responsibility and accountability, I look at as very uh, sacred and deep to me. And so you ask earlier how this has transformed me and my calling. Holding these ways of being and knowing and these principles have always informed the work in which I decide to align myself with, which takes care of my heart and my joy. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of thinkers and leaders who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Each week, we converse in complete openness, in an ongoing quest to find those boundaries in our being and melt them into lofty horizons. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Hello, my friends, my fellow travelers. Welcome back to Life is a Festival. Oh, I apologize. It's been a while. I've been traveling and I've been doing this functional medicine protocol, which has been taking a lot of my attention. And have no fear, I will do a podcast that tells you all about the interesting ways I've been healing my gut biome and detoxifying my body and essentially making everything better. And it has been working. So stay tuned for a future episode about that. But today... Today, we are talking to Sutton King. Sutton King is the head of impact at Journey Collab, which is a startup that is moving mescaline through the FDA process for the treatment of alcoholism. And Journey Collab is unique in the psychedelic landscape as a drug developer because they've really approached things with such incredible integrity. It's very impressive. And one of the things that they're doing is this indigenous reciprocity trust, which Sutton is responsible for in her work with Journey Collab. And we're going to talk all about that today, all about reciprocity, kinship, something called the seven generations principle. And beyond her work with Journey Collab, we're also going to talk about the responsibilities of anyone who's participating in the psychedelic medicine movement, psychedelic entrepreneurs, therapists, healers. And also, what are the responsibilities of the individual psychonaut? Those of us who want to explore the innermost reaches of our mind with every possible tool available, well, how do we sit in right relation to the honorable harvest of these medicines and in the integrity of these people who have been stewards for so long? It's really a rich conversation, and I'm so grateful that Sutton has taken the time to come on this podcast and talk about it. So Sutton is a descendant of the Menominee and Oneida Nations of Wisconsin. She is a nationally recognized indigenous health advocate, a researcher, and a social entrepreneur. She is the co-founder and president of the Urban Indigenous Collective, which is a nonprofit that advocates on behalf of urban natives in the tri-state area. She is head of Impact at Journey Collab, a startup led by Sam Altman and Jishan Chaudhry, developing psychedelic treatments for mental health, and she is the co-founder of Shock Talk, a culturally tailored telemental health platform that facilitates culturally appropriate patient-provider relationships. Sutton is a very accomplished woman, and she has a great deal of wisdom to share, and I'm so honored to have her on the show. So here you are, Sutton King. Sutton, welcome to... Life is a festival. This is a podcast for those of us who wish to create a life more like a festival. And it has always been the case, but it is increasingly obvious that a life that is a festival is not an individual life. It is a life interwoven with all life, with 
the other people that are around us, around the world, with animals, with plants, we are in this together or we're all getting dusted off this planet. Um, so, so I'm so excited to have the opportunity to speak about your life and your work and to speak about reciprocity and what reciprocity means in the psychedelic landscape and, and in our own lives. So there's a lot to discuss today and I'm just very honored that you're taking the time to be here with me. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you. And I'll say poso, shukoli, sainking, nukats, tau pinuki, so, hello, uh, that's a, a greeting in my Oneida language, um, where I share that I'm Oneida, I'm of the Turtle Clan, people of the Standing Stone. My names are Sutton King, which are, it's my English name, but my native name is Naktao Pinuki, and that means comes first woman. Wow, comes first woman, that is a powerful powerful name. How do you feel that that's manifesting in your life in this precise moment? Do you feel do you feel really resonant with that name right now? Absolutely. I think throughout my life it's been a, a theme uh, being able to do a lot of firsts in my family, um, which I have a lot of gratitude for being one of the first to receive a master's in my in my family, uh, being one of the first to move so far away to New York City. And especially right now, being, you know, one of the first and being a voice to really bring together, I think, these different ways of being and knowing within the mainstream psychedelic space, not to discredit any of my ancestors or those who've come before me. But it's very unique, I think, in the way that I've been given the opportunity to speak about where we're at as a collective being as it relates to plant medicine and the psychedelic space. And could it be that you might be the first in your lineage to do consulting work for the United Nations or to have a piece about you on the, in the New York Times, maybe to have your own nonprofit, to be working with a psychedelic drug development company? It seems like there's a lot of firsts that I don't think many of our listeners have had any access to in their lives. So you have quite the CV um, for someone <laughs> who is still also in some ways early in your career with, with a lot ahead of you. Absolutely. Um, and I would say that I'm definitely someone who's done a lot of first in my family, but a lot of my inspiration comes from my ancestors and my family members. You know, in particular, my relative Ingrid Washington Talk, uh, Flying Eagle Woman. She was taken from us in 1999, but she was one of the first members uh, of the Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues uh, within the United Nations. Um, oh, she wow. started the Four Directions Fund and did a lot of work really bringing together both the Indigenous peoples of the North and the Indigenous peoples of the South. And she was uh, unfortunately assassinated in Colombia doing work uh, with the Indigenous peoples there. But it really is her legacy that has inspired me and so many things that I do, whether it's uh, moving to New York City. She was actually one of the first to move to, to New York City and, and start the work that she did here in community uh, with the American Indian Community House. And to really look at her legacy and the work that she did and the way that she brought our uh, teachings of the Menominee people to, to mainstream, if you will, was really profound to me. Um, and I really felt like I had an opportunity to continue uh, those teachings and continue on that path uh, as if the, the baton was passed to me. You know, and it was also um, learning a, about her assassination that really, you know, uh, I would say inspired me to learn more about gender-based violence as it relates to Indigenous women, apart from my own story as a survivor. But I really see Ingrid's work as a testimony to just the teachings of the Menominee people, as well as my grandfather, Chief Oshkosh, who really, I think, set the precedence as it relates to sustainability. <laughs> and we can get into that more uh, later. Oh yeah, there's so much to get into there and so many legacies and so much to honor as well. You know, I, I will often start in a conversation like this with, with your story, but I think that before we talk about your story, I think just to locate our audience in the work that you're doing in this moment, we'll talk a lot about this later on, but this idea of reciprocity in the context 
of the modern psychedelic movement. Many of the listeners to this podcast are folks who have experienced a great deal of personal transformation through their access to psychedelic medicine. And so just before we launch into this winding journey that is taking you to where you are now, what's a day look like for you right now in terms of the work that you're doing? What are some of the things, some of the projects that you're working on? Just give us a little bit of a taste of what the actual labor of making change in the world in the psychedelic space looks like for someone like yourself right now? Sure. So I would have to start with, uh, I'm the co-founder and president of the Urban Indigenous Collective, which is a nonprofit that advocates on the behalf of urban natives living in the tri-state area. So really looking at the importance of culturally appropriate uh, healthcare and culturally appropriate uh, mental uh, healthcare resources for urban natives living in metro cities. Um, we know that there's a lot of lack of uh, healthcare infrastructure as it relates to indigenous peoples. And then on the other hat, I am the head of impact at Journey Collab, which is a drug development company uh, led by Sam and Dishan Chaudhry, and we're developing psychedelic treatments for mental health. And then last but not least, I'm the co-founder of Shock Talk, which is a culturally tailored telemental health platform that truly facilitates culturally appropriate uh, patient-provider relationships. And so within all of that, I would really say, you know, in a short way to describe myself, I'd say I'm an Indigenous health advocate, I'm a researcher, and I'm a social entrepreneur um, at heart. And I'd say a typical day looks like for me, it would be looking at access and benefit sharing within the psychedelic sector, really looking at how we are including Indigenous peoples and the value creation that the Renaissance is really uh, lying forth. And day to day, I'm thinking about ways that folks in the space can show up for Indigenous peoples who've been oftentimes alienated from the wealth that's being generated. I'm strategizing with folks on how we can create a trust that can support conservation, that can support access to mental health, that can support the larger ecosystem, making sure that the folks, the culture, the community who has protected and stewarded this medicine aren't left behind and that their knowledge and traditions are centered. Um, I would say... On the grassroots level, I am advocating for resources here in what we call Lenape Hoking, uh, New York City. Um, one of the largest populations of urban natives lives here. And um, unfortunately, we just don't have the resources we need. And so as I'm watching the psychedelic sector start to commercialize these medicines and a lot of wealth being generated and value being created, you know, I think about the grassroots nonprofits folks uh, like myself where I come from um, and the resources that we're so um, that we're that we're we're fighting over to be quite frank there's just not enough philanthropic donations going to indigenous led organizations and so really looking at a way in which this uh, value is being creating in the space to really give back um, to these different organizations, nations, traditions, cultures, to protect them, uh, to empower them, um, and to make sure that they uh, have the right tools to advocate for themselves as well. I, you know, on one hand, I'm making sure that I'm teaching the, the sector about the things that they can do to operationalize reciprocity, if you will. And on the other hand, I'm trying to ensure that indigenous peoples also know their rights uh, as it relates to their own plant medicine and traditions. And so really, I'd say a moccasin on one foot and a high heel on the other. How do we keep the balance? <laughs> well, Sutton, we are so lucky to have you in the work that you're doing. And I love the way you've laid out these, these different access points you have to supporting mental health in these underserved communities in New York City. And then the big drug development company, which as you know, I, I hold Journey Collab in high esteem because I believe that they are in in right relation in a way that many companies in the psychedelic space are not. So, you know, as you pointed out, there's there's just this wide spectrum of ways that you're contributing, and I think also a way that you're contributing to is just as a model for other women, for other people of color, for people generally in the psychedelic space. Like I see you as a model and as a leader, and part of what my hope is today in this conversation is to really just show you, in addition to talking about something as meaty and important as operationalizing reciprocity, 
I can't wait for you to tell me how to do that because <laughs> we need that. But also, like, how does a life blossom into what yours is now where you're so involved and so engaged and, and you have so many different ways in which you're contributing? It strikes me that you're going to need to really cultivate a lot of joy in your service to have just the wherewithal and the energy to do the work you do. So I'm curious how you evolved into this being of service who's able to work on so many projects at once with so much passion while maintaining what I witness as a lot of joy. Can you tell me a bit about like the earliest kernels of the visions that, that then blossomed into the work you do in the world? Absolutely. I'll start with, I've always been deeply connected to my indigenous culture traditions my mother, who was born in the 70s, born to a grandmother, my maternal grandmother, she's enrolled in the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. She's both Menominee and Oneida. My grandmother grew up in a time where it was not cool to be a Native American, or she, or she would say it wasn't cool to be an Indian. And coming from generations of boarding school era, my grandmother, I'd say, went through different ways of assimilation. And there was not uh, a lot of ceremony within my mom's life while she was growing up. And born in the 70s, it was very important for her to reclaim that tradition. Although my family grew up on the reservation, still lives on the reservation, there are families who are seen as more traditional natives and those who are perhaps more religious through Catholicism. And so with my mom, with me growing up, it was so important for her to remind me of the ancestry that I come from, of the teachings that uh, we were born with, these ways of knowing and being. And so my early education was spent in the Oneida daycare on the Oneida reservation. I was born in Green Bay, which shares uh, a border with the Oneida reservation, whereas the Menominee reservation is 45 minutes north. But again, of my family born on our ancestral land. But my mom really um, wanted me again to always know where I come from, no matter where I might be in the world. And so um, ceremony was always something that was a part of my life. And so I grew up dancing what is known as jingle dress. And the jingle dress dancing really represents healing, right? We dance for our relatives and our community and our nations uh, who are sick. Uh, and need that healing. And so I started dancing at a very young age, probably about two years old. I was actually walking at eight months and I was dancing around that time. So probably even sooner, actually. And I didn't know then what it truly meant to uh, dance jingle dress. But as an adult, I realized that that calling to healing and that purpose was instilled very early. And I always had this purpose in my heart um, that uh, it was my calling to help heal my community. Matter of fact, when I was first born, my mom brought me to our reservation and an elder actually came to me and said to my mother that this little girl will do great things for her people. And it wasn't until way later that my mom shared that story with me. But, you know, I never knew exactly what it would look like. Uh, but in some way, creator and ancestors have truly paved the way for me to really be able to walk in that. And so at 17 years old, I decided I was coming to New York City to begin walking on that path and really excited to be able to uh, be here today so early in my career and have done so many different things to, to support the healing of Indigenous communities. Mm -hmm. Oh, so beautiful. You know, when you think about life as a festival, so much of that is, is dance and celebration and the healing power of dance and celebration mm -hmm. in this sort of modern, kind of alienated Western capitalist landscape. Many of us go to festivals to try to find community and connection and dance. And so you talking about being this two-year-old healing dancer, can you describe the, what the actual dance that you would do, what, what it looked like? Yeah. What, how could, could we visualize that dance? Absolutely. Um, and so the, the dress is really laid with layers of cones. Um, and as you, you step, the cones shake and they produce a beautiful, beautiful song, really. And really, it's a, a variation of different two steps, hops, where you have one hand on each side and your chest to the sky, almost your heart to creator. 
you really are moving to the sound of the drum. And it's, it is truly powerful. And I always thought it was truly majestic. And again, really felt such deep connection and such power within uh, the jingle dress dancing. Mm, it sounds so powerful and majestic. I love mm-hmm. that. I'm so glad that you were able to describe that for us. Okay, so you arrive in New York City and ready to take yeah. a bite out of the Big Apple, ready to make your mark. And I understand that you became very passionate about indigenous health in an urban context. Was that something that you started getting into working in nonprofits in the context of also your studies at that time? Well, let me walk back a couple (laughs) steps here. So I'd always lived in more uh, rural or suburban places, whether it was outside of the Oneida Reservation, outside the Menominee Reservation, It wasn't until I was 15 that I moved to what I had considered a big city, which was Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the biggest city I had ever seen by far. (laughs) And when I got there, I actually was approached by uh, a group called Urban Underground. Um, And they had a table outside of my high school and they were talking about equality and racial injustice and the uh, school to prison pipeline. And I'm, what? what is going on here? You know, I need to understand what, what this group is about. And uh, I, I signed up to learn more information. And it was application process where I think maybe 800 folks, urban inner city youth applied to be a part of a program called Urban Underground. Um, I was, I think, one of 30 who got admitted into this organization. And it really uh, was this organization to support young leaders uh, within urban settings to really uh, create social justice campaigns and equity campaigns around providing more resources um, and strengthening community. Um, Well, I found my place, didn't I? And I just really started to shine. They saw a leader in me before I did. And that's Reggie and Charlene Moore, who are great advocates, community leaders, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And uh, that's really where I sat and found her voice. I was organizing buses to skip school, to go to the Capitol and in Wisconsin to protest and march with some of the greatest leaders of the civil rights movement. And so when I I really had this calling at 17 to move to New York City. Well, my family thought I was, you know, crazy. You know, I had never been there before. Um, But I knew that the work that Ingrid had done and this really voice inside of me was really pointing me in that way, in that direction. And so I applied to a variety of universities. I don't think my mom believed that I was truly going to go until I got all those acceptance letters and I, I showed her and she said, OK, well, let's pack up the car. And so my mother, my mom, me, three Native women packed the car up and drove from Wisconsin to New York City. It was about, I think, 17 hours in that car, but well worth it. And they dropped me off at the College of Mount St. Vincent in uh, the Bronx in Riverdale. It sits on 70 acres on the Hudson, kind of tucked away. Not exactly what you would think of a New York City university, but it was uh, really a good transition for me coming from, you know, my grandparents who had a 180-acre dairy farm in Wisconsin, which is where I grew up as a country girl, really, but to really dive into psychology. You know, I pursued my degree in psychology. I really wanted to better understand the historical and intergenerational trauma of my community. You know, here I was fighting on the grassroots to get resources in inner city Milwaukee, but why are we needing resources? Why is there a lack of why is it when I'm in Shorewood, which was a nice uh, suburban city of Milwaukee, there's uh, a lot of resources and there's a lot of great programs and um, there's a lot of great things to do. But when I go into Milwaukee or I go home to my reservation, there's nothing. So this really, yeah, really began my deep introspection into self and into my family's heritage and lineage. Mm. And we've talked prior to this conversation a bit about that heritage and that lineage. And I'd love to speak a little bit about that now, particularly through this theme that's kind of running through the entire conversation, which is about real reciprocity and a real balance of communities and ecosystems. And so 
in this moment when you're studying psychology in New York and you're starting to imagine your mark that you'd like to make on the world, I'm curious, you just mentioned that, that this was a time when you started to look more deeply into your lineage and into some of the teachings. What were some of the, some of the teachings that came from your lineage that really started to bubble up and guide your way in that particular moment in your life? Yeah, I would say that kinship which is really at the center of many of our indigenous teachings, which is, again, this really shared traditional cultural value that really requires all things animate and inanimate to be good relatives, to work within relation with one another to achieve harmony and sustainability. These are the the ways in which I always saw the world. And I think that within this indigenous worldview, kinship really is, I think, the bedrock to what contemporary world has coined as, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion. But I always felt so blessed to know these teachings and to to know that if we are going to truly achieve a just and sustainable world, that we have to operate in a framework and view of kinship and that we have to protect one another. And uh, realizing that, you know, I'm here because of kinship. I'm here because of these sacred teachings that have guided my ancestors through the violence of colonialization and exploitation uh, to survival. And so I think the teachings that taught them uh, are the teachings that I would want to, you know, pass on to future generations, which um, is another teaching that we can talk about also, the seven generation principle. Oh yeah, let's let's talk about seven generations because that comes up a lot in psychedelic circles. Share a little bit about that because I don't think that I've ever heard about this concept closer to the source. It's it's mostly come down through the kind of geeky psychedelic people. <laughs> <Sure. laughs> Which I'm not saying you're not a geeky psychedelic person. I'm not saying you you aren't. But Truth there's can exist at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell me about the seven generations. Yeah, so it will to tell you about this, the, the seven generations, it's important to tell you about uh, my Oneida ancestry. So as I shared, my grandmother is enrolled in the Oneida Nation of Wisconsin. Um, but the Oneidas are ancestral to New York. And the Oneidas actually were given land by the Menominees after we're being encroached on. So some stayed here in New York, some migrated to Wisconsin. And so the, the Oneidas were really in uh, a lot of intertribal warfare. And with a lot of different tribes within Northern uh, New York. So the Mohawk, the Onondaga, the Seneca, and it was really Western expansion that, that really brought six New York nations together, which is known as the Haudenosaunee or the six nations, or you know, some of us call six nay. But really we had to come together uh, in unity to really uh, protect one another. And so this principle of the seven generation is something that was really considered heavily. It's really this philosophy that the decisions that we make today need to result in a sustainable uh, world seven generations into the future. And this is integral to Haudenosaunee life. You know, and it's this really, I think, concrete value that strengthens and um, deepens our bond of community while promoting sustainability. Um, and even in business structures for Native people um, and the way that we govern and the way that we interact with um, stakeholders. And I think it goes back to just looking at our democracy. The Iroquois Confederacy actually holds the oldest democracy on earth. And it was actually the United States Constitution that based a lot of the concepts on the Haudenosaunee uh, way of life. And I think it was 1988 that the U.S. Senate actually honored the Iroquois Confederacy with a resolution um, that highlighted that the uh, original 13 colonies were really influenced by the political system that was developed by my people. And so, you know, uh, there's a lot of different ways in which uh, indigenous values and ways of being and tradition are tied into the world we live in today, whether that's the seven generation principle or it's the way in which we think about kinship and our sustainable business structures or the way that we govern. And they come down to very simple teachings of being good relatives to one another and caring for one another. The way that I have heard about seven generations has been around transformational psychedelic work being something that heals seven generations in the past and seven mm -hmm. generations to the future. And perhaps this is part of the seven generations teaching that you're referring to, but it's interesting that that's the piece that seems to trickle down through psychedelic communities. But this idea of stewardship, governance, and reciprocity, 
that piece isn't as highlighted. And it's interesting because it does seem to maybe represent a little bit of the kind of individualistic perspective that is pretty endemic in Western culture, that I'm doing my healing for my lineage, but it's a little bit more me doing my thing, which I see a lot in the psychedelic community, versus me taking on responsibility and me me owning a responsibility that I have that is maybe more widespread. So that's I think right. that's an interesting distinction. Yeah. And I think it's one of our responsibilities as human people to find ways to enter into reciprocity with more than the human world, right? And that's kinship, as I talked about, both animate and animate. Um, and I think we can do that through a number of things, whether it's gratitude, ceremony, really understanding the traumas and the challenges that came before us that our ancestors experienced. And I think that a lot of the current challenges that we have is because folks aren't understanding the interconnectedness of human and natural systems. Um, And I think when they start to center kinship and understand that, they'll understand that this responsibility is more than just this individual view. It's, It's greater than us. It's seven generations. It's the ancestors who came before us and those who come after us. So that responsibility and accountability, I look at as very uh, sacred and deep to me. And so you asked earlier how this has transformed me and my calling. Holding these ways of being and knowing and these principles have always informed the work in which I decide to align myself with, which takes care of my heart and my joy. Mm. And there's one psychedelic plant for me that is symbolic of the issue with the individual consumptive version of psychedelic transformation versus the necessity for deeply interrelated reciprocity. And that is peyote. Peyote is, to my understanding, the most endangered of all psychedelic plants. It takes a very long time to mature a peyote button. Peyote is endangered not just because of consumption through ceremony, but also because of developments in the Southwest. These are precious little cacti that we can't rapaciously consume for our own sort of egoic transformation outside of the context in which they're appropriate. Meanwhile, it's my understanding, and and you may know more about this than me, I know that this isn't directly related to your people, or perhaps perhaps in some ways it is, but that peyote did bring together a lot of different indigenous groups and brought a lot of leadership there. So it's it's this powerful little cactus button that frankly, we shouldn't be just doing. You shouldn't just be eating peyote. And for me, it's in a sense kind of symbolic of some of the contradictions that exist in the sort of psychonaut, self-experimentation, individualistic perspective versus the deep indigenous lineages that have been stewards. And I think it's a great thing for us to talk about in part two because of what's going on with Journey Collab as well and Journey Collab's exploration of masculine. So let's talk a little bit about Peyote. So first, I just want to see if I was right about this because I made the statement. It was not my understanding that peyote was used by your people. Is that accurate? That's that's right. That's right. So yeah, not home to the Menominee or the Oneida people, but there's definitely accounts and documentation of the different bartering paths, whether those are the different trails or rivers where um, a lot of these medicines were traded. And peyote did bring a lot of different indigenous groups together um, of the North and the South. And I think a lot of plant medicine has shown that historically to bring folks together, which is very beautiful. Well, let's talk, let's talk about this magical button that brings people together. And if there's one thing that I'd love for our listeners to take away from this, well, I'd love for them to take away everything and exactly what is most relevant to them. But if there's one thing that is present for me is the idea that we need to be very wise about our consumption of psychedelic plants and what the context we're using them for. And I think our own personal transformation is not enough. It's not enough to say, I want to have a groovy trip and I want to ascend and become a better entrepreneur. We're not quite hitting the mark there. So let's talk a bit about that. How might one approach peyote? How is Journey Collab approaching peyote and mescaline? Absolutely. Um, And this is a really important conversation that we're having right now. And Journey Collab is taking mescaline through FDA uh, right now. And, you know, it's important to understand that mescaline is the main alkaloid of peyote as well as San Pedro and other cacti. But we acknowledge the spiritual and cultural implication of that, right? To be able to say, oh, it's just mescaline. It's just this 
compound. It has nothing to do with peyote is a very reductionist view, right? This individual, an individualistic view that I think um, the Western world uh, has centered and really take steps back from looking at kinship, right? And looking at the interconnectedness of things, right? And so acknowledging uh, that there is this threat to peyote, uh, that mescaline is a part of peyote, um, we feel a responsibility. And so through that, what we've done is really created reciprocity through the Journey Reciprocity Trust and our consultation process. And so the Journey Reciprocity Trust is really designed to ensure fair and equitable sharing of benefits uh, with Indigenous groups that participate within the the ecosystem as it relates to to peyote. And so really supporting conservation efforts, really supporting access to mental health, uh, supporting just the value creation that is happening within uh, the space and making sure that we're directing it at the communities that have protected the medicine for time immemorial, who have protected these ways of being and knowing and and the traditions that come forth. And it is my true belief that we would not be here in the psychedelic renaissance at this time if it wasn't for the indigenous peoples who fought uh, so hard to ensure that we could practice our traditions, uh, whether that was the ghost dance, sun dance in ceremony or practicing with our different plant medicines. And so I see this trust as a way of reciprocity uh, and a way to really ensure that Indigenous peoples, as well as other folks in, in, in the community who have really, again, advocated for this use within Indigenous peoples, it remains that way. I really like Journey Collab, and the, the reason is, is and as you pointed out, is there's two things going on here. Is one looking at synthetic mescaline moving through FDA approval, so not harvesting from peyote. Right. Um, so the, these are medicines that are that are going to be created in a sustainable way. That's huge. Yes. And then what you've just so eloquently described here, the reciprocity trust. What are the actual numbers here in terms of the equity structure? of the trust itself and and who does that trust actually support? Where does that money ultimately go? Right. So there's actually 10% of equity uh, that is in uh, the Journey Reciprocity Trust. And the Journey Reciprocity Trust is really to ensure that Indigenous communities, um, as well as the larger ecosystem, is a part of the value that Journey uh, Collab is creating. Um, And so the goal of the trust really is to equitably distribute the benefits arising out of mescaline and to support conservation. We talked about the threat of peyote, so this is uh, a way in which we can really support the conservation ecology of, of peyote as well as access to mental health resources. So, you know, we've talked about just the lack thereof of culturally appropriate resources, especially as someone who has a nonprofit and the importance of just making sure that there's money coming back into these vital resources. And so this trust really serves as a a mechanism of, of reciprocity. So I'm reading this great book right now called Braiding Sweetgrass uh, by Robin Wall Kimmer. And in Braiding Sweetgrass, she's writing about the honorable harvest. And she has this section about someone who is a trapper. And she's like, I thought that I would never be cool with someone who traps animals. And then she goes into this sort of this deep journey of this man's life. And he he developed this relationship that was kind of like conservation and trapping at the same time. So he would actually feed the mothers to help they'd have more offspring and then they would trap the males. But if they trapped a female, they would know that the the numbers had gone off and they'd have to stop trapping. And I was reading that and it made me think a little bit about what is possible for the psychedelic community now. If people with a lot of resources weren't falling in love with ayahuasca, those people might not be donating money to rainforest preservation, Mm -hmm. right? There is an opportunity here for people who've been turned on and lit up by these medicines, particularly medicines that often connect us more deeply with the earth. There's an opportunity here. However, we got to get that right because it's so easy to create more extraction. And I think that the biggest failure of the psychedelic renaissance would be for the greatest paradigm shift in mental health to actually fall into the same extractive patterns that we've seen with 
all these other kind of capitalist models. So when we're looking at Journey Collab and the Reciprocity Trust and the work that you're doing there, it's not just what that one company is doing, it's the model. Can we show that a stakeholder model isn't high risk and can that get the investment capital in while creating this trust itself? So the stakes are so high and I think that's why it's so important that we're talking about and so important that we're having models like Journey Collab that we can extrapolate out to the broader psychedelic renaissance and the broader psychedelic community. Absolutely. And I think, you know, for the Menominee people, it's this principle of sustainability really comes from just, I think, our historical and cultural relationship with the land. You know, my grandfather, as I talked about, Chief Oshkosh, he really understood the importance of culture and tradition as just the foundation of survival and, and sustainability for our nation, at least. And I think that him understanding the need to protect culture and our tradition and him understanding this, but also knowing that uh, the world was changing, right? People could own land. We never understood that. And as that was happening, um, we were having to seed our land, our acres slowly. Um, He did this in a very strategic way, but to me, it really exemplified this bridge, this bridge of two worlds in which I find myself walking on a lot. And I think that his ability to do this, his ability to understand the importance of culture and land and what was happening in the contemporary world then um, allowed for me to stay connected to my teachings, right? And to for our people to stay on our ancestral land where a lot of us are displaced. And I think that it's that relationship with the forest and his teachings. He really, he really taught the Menominee people to never take more than what we needed. His teachings are recognized globally today as sustainable forestry. Uh, people, as a matter of fact, come from all over the world to look at the Menominee uh, forests and to look at the way in which we have protected our forest, really making sure that we never take, again, more than we need. And it was the sick trees, the trees that had fallen, that, that we took. Um, and, and I just share that because I think that, again, it's these simple teachings that could really create so much change and really, really bring forth this way that we're thinking about equality, the way that we're thinking about equity, the way that we're thinking about innovative business structures that ensuring that we are being fair and we're being equitable. I go back to the teachings of just the Plains people who were were one of the greatest honors was giving your horse to the poorest member of the tribe. Or I think about the Pacific Northwest folks who practiced the potluck, right? And it was really this voluntary redistributing of wealth to make sure that those uh, who have the least are able to eat. And I think that while we're in this, you know, a psychedelic renaissance, we really need to go back to these, these teachings and really ensure that we are taking care of the folks who, again, have been left out. And so it's really great to hear you really talk about the, the way in which you know, there are folks who have more resources who are coming into community with these medicines in a respectful way, or I hope they are, <laughs> and the responsibility that they have to ensure that, you know, the medicines that they consume or share with their community are protected or the people and traditions in which it comes from are protected. And there are a number of ways to do that. Um, and I'm just really honored that we're talking about that now and that there's such a warm embrace from the, the ecosystem to look at these innovative structures. And again, a lot of them come from these basic principles and teachings of the Haudenosaunee or many other indigenous peoples. <laughs> okay, so I'd like to speak to two audiences. So first, I'd like to speak to the people who are involved in the psychedelic movement from a business perspective. And then I'd like to speak to the individual psychonauts, the people who are participating in these medicines, the people who are who are having these experiences themselves. So in the first group, I don't just mean the big business. I also mean psychedelic therapists. I also mean anyone who is making a livelihood around psychedelic transformation. That's the first group who we're going to talk to. And then the second group are people who are having the transformation themselves. So with the first group, mm-hmm. we've talked about Journey Collab as a model. Mm-hmm. We've talked about some of the concepts. I'd like to bring in also the Nagoya Protocol, 
um, right. in, in our conversation. So I'd love for you to explain that as well as free prior and informed consent, two concepts that I'd love for you to explain for us in this context. And I think that for anyone who is making a living on psychedelic transformation, what I'd love to hear from you is what do they need to know? What are the key points of reciprocal right relationship with indigenous lineages that we need to bring in as those of us who are making a living as well as giving the healing to others? Yeah, let's start with the Nagoya Protocol, right? I think that what's so beautiful uh, about the United Nations and about the indigenous peoples and leaders who came before us is that they've designed so many different protocols and declarations. We don't need to reinvent the wheel. <laughs> indigenous peoples have been coming together to advocate for how they want to be in community with folks and how they see reciprocity. And so let's take a look at those things. And so starting with the Nagoya Protocol, right? The Nagoya Protocol is an international agreement or a multilateral treaty. A treaty can be a little bit of a scary word for indigenous peoples because there's Oftentimes, <laughs> not treaties are broken, uh, these sacred promises. But there is this agreement that covers biodiversity and the application um, of benefits that are arising from use. And so, again, as you see with Journey Collab, we are inspired by the Nagoya Protocol, right? Really seeing that with us taking uh, mescaline through FDA, this responsibility to support the conservation of peyote. And so I think that it's up to the company or the person and what level of access benefit sharing that they are able to engage in or willing to engage in. But I do think that that is something that should be set. For a lot of folks, they, again, they see access benefit sharing as synonymous to reparations. But I think that this is a way in which we can really start creating some equity in the space. And so starting there, I think that it's important that those conversations are being, you know, being had with Indigenous peoples about the use of those medicines, synthetic or not. And so starting there with Nagoya Protocol, I say access benefit sharing is the number one thing that you can do to show up because we need resources. And then there's also this free prior and informed consent, which I think is really important. We often talk about cultural appropriation mm -hmm. as something that we'd like to avoid in the psychedelic space. But rather than avoiding cultural appropriation, I think this concept of free prior and informed consent, when we're talking about the prior consultation and participation of indigenous peoples in projects that impact their resources, that this is like a key feature as well. There's got to be a way that it works even on the smaller individual levels of psychedelic therapy, for example. Absolutely. It's important to understand what free prior informed consent is or FPIC. It's really aimed at just establishing a bottom-up participation and consultation with Indigenous peoples prior to beginning any development on ancestral land or using resources in Indigenous populations' uh, territory. And that comes from the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, UN DRIP. Shout out to Jesse Hudson. We always say respect the DRIP when we talk about this work. And I think it's really important to highlight that. But um, yeah, Journey Collab really, I'd say, is inspired by FPIC as well. And we're really looking at that within our consultation. And so, you know, I think that it's important to highlight the most ethical and de-risk approach is learning from the communities who have created safe containers for time memorial. And I think this, this consultation um, that you do with community supports that fair and equitable distribution of benefits that arise from whatever portion of your business. And asking Indigenous peoples, what does reciprocity look like to you? That happens within consultation. And I think it's really ignorant to assume that we know what reciprocity looks like for each uh, group or individual or medicine. And it's important to have many conversations and create a safe container to have a meaningful dialogue. Um, and that's really this precedence that the free prior informed consent creates is this uh, seven-step pathway to have meaningful dialogue in a way that respects Indigenous peoples. And FPIC is really a free prior, so it's, an, it's really important to make sure that these conversations are happening um, before you decide to do anything on ancestral land or within ancestral medicine. 
So something about this this prior piece here, having these conversations, bringing in these different stakeholders is something that may have not already happened for certain companies. There's companies who are wanting to, quote, diversify their boards, for example. Mm-hmm. There are different organizations, maybe people listening to this podcast who may be, may be running an organization who hasn't quite done this prior engagement of indigenous yeah. voices. Never um, too late. And so that can be, <laughs> well, you know, but it can be intimidating. To, who do you talk to? Mm-hmm. And is it offensive for someone to say, well, look, I got a board of, of white businessmen. I realize there's something wrong here. I, I want to create a different psychedelic model, but I don't just want to be going around trying to tokenize right. whoever's on a psychedelic panel and be like, oh, I'm going to go approach them and be like, hey, can you be on my board so that I can look like right. I'm I'm making the difference that I want to make. And at the same time, people do want to make that difference. So it's this tricky place of, of what to do. Now, granted, if you're just mm-hmm. starting, I know in Journey Collab, Journey Collab spent a lot of time having stakeholder conversations mm-hmm. before launching. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, a lot went into those ethics. There are other companies who have done some version of that, maybe not as much. And there's some companies who are, maybe they're just waking up to that now. And even for psychedelic therapists themselves or people who are making a smaller clinic, it's not a huge company with a board, but maybe it's a, it's a clinic. What is the appropriate way in which to reach out to indigenous leaders to ask for participation and consent in a way that has real reciprocity? How would you advise doing that? Absolutely. And I think this is really important uh, that you're highlighting this because I think that there is definitely issues that arise uh, when you have this reciprocity approach that is mainstream now. I think it's really great that we are wanting to give back and thinking about how we bring Indigenous peoples into the conversation. But there is a part of me as an Indigenous advocate that is worried because there are issues that arise when there are folks asking you to hand over Indigenous peoples, right? Or asking to have access to Indigenous peoples who may not have the right education or tools and how to advocate for themselves. And so I think that you get into a place of, like you said, tokenism, right? Finding the few Black or Brown or Indigenous uh, voices in the space to represent diversity, uh, whether that's on your board or on your team. So I think it's important to identify who's already doing the work, right? Uh, based on the medicine that you're working with or the space in which you're operating in. Um, and that can start at a local level. Let's say you're here in New York City and you want to start a business around plant medicine, around indigenous you know, traditions and ways of knowing and being. Um, protocol in our community an indigenous community is to recognize whose land you're on first. And then you need to do the research around those folks and those people, understand if they are still doing their own traditional and spiritual ways in that community, how you can support them, research the local organizations, whether that is the urban programs or the tribal programs, depending on where you're at. You can also show up for those folks while doing that research, right? Through donation, really ensuring that those folks are coming into community with you through consultation, whether you're wanting to, um... well, actually, let me, let, me, let me pause right there. Because I think that a lot of research needs to happen first. Like I described, looking into whose land you're on, looking into who's doing the work, who are the key leaders, who are the advocates in the community, and then going to them and asking those advocates, what is the appropriate way to come into community? I think you need to do the education beforehand. And then when it's time, you reach out and ask, depending on where you're at, what medicine you're using. And I think it's it's all going to vary. And I think these are a lot of really great questions that people are asking themselves and are asking other, you know, voices in the space. But I think that before anything, asking yourself whose land you're on and how you can support them. Mm, That's really important. Mm -hmm. And I think with all of these things, it takes time. There's this wonderful expression, I believe it comes from a book um, called Move at the Speed of Trust. You may be starting late, but you still shouldn't rush it. It isn't about trying to get somebody on your board. 
It's about, okay, well, if you started late, Mm -hmm. if you haven't done that, what has been missing so far in the company? And if you're starting a new company, I I love what you pointed out about taking care of the people around you. So, for example, are you familiar with Sage Institute? I am. The clinic in, yeah. Yeah, so I I really like the work of Sage Institute, and I, I lift them up a lot in my conversations about the psychedelic community because foundationally, they are a community clinic mm-hmm. with the goal of providing equal access to ketamine therapy and, of course, other medicines as they become legal, but also training clinicians from diverse backgrounds and also doing research that focuses on different communities that aren't typically the focus of psychedelic research. I, when I think about a psychedelic organization that is in good reciprocal relationship, SAGE really comes up a lot. So yeah, I really really appreciate the work they do there. I do too. And it was really great to visit with them and be in community. When I was in town, I would say maybe a few months ago, that's just something that doesn't have a price, community. And it's so important to be ground in community voice. I think that is the way in which the Urban Indigenous Collective operates. You know, we launched in 2019 and we launched on Indigenous People's Day and our goal is to become a community health clinic. But we wanted to ensure that first uh, we planted the seeds to grow the trust. So launching on Indigenous People's Day with a community health needs assessment that asks, what do you need? What's working for you? What's not working? Um, I think it's important that we don't come into community and tell community what reciprocity is and what reciprocity looks like or what programming they need or what resources are are going to be good for them. We ask them, we have dialogue and we develop that together. And so it's really um, exciting to be in uh, year two with UIC and now we're doing our community health forums. Again, to really uh, strengthen that relationship, strengthen that trust. And as you said, time is so important especially when we are trying to really repair harm that has been done as it relates to to healthcare and mental health, especially for Black, Brown, and Indigenous peoples. And so I think that um, we put the seeds in the ground when the ground is ready, not based on a calendar date. And um, it's important to know that when you're wanting to be ground in community voice, uh, when you're wanting to really look at equality, those timelines are going to take a little bit longer versus just trying to get to market, right? Or just trying to profit. But again, if we think about the seven generations, when we take our time, when we create trust, when we center community, the foundation that we have will really take care of us. And I think that is something that does not have a price. And I'm willing to take as as long as as it's needed to be able to support my future generations in, in my community. I love that. You know, I'm going to give a little shout out here. If you are listening and you are wanting to create a psychedelic clinic in New York City, and if you're working in New York City, then there's an organization that I think would love to have a conversation with you about potential collaboration and reciprocity, and that is the Urban Indigenous Collective. So, so sure Sutton, are you open to, I mean, let's let's talk about like a direct direct involvement. If, if someone is in the New York, New York City, New York area, are you someone that they can reach out to if they're interested in collaborating, supporting some of these indigenous initiatives and, and, and really connecting and integrity in that way? Absolutely. Absolutely. We uh, really center community-based participatory research. Um, it's very important to us to make sure that indigenous people's ways of being annoying are being, you know, centered and research and the development of businesses that arise from our traditions and ways. And I think that the Urban Indigenous Collective has a really great set of expertise as it relates to culturally appropriate approaches and methodologies. You know, we have a really great staff that's Indigenous-led as well as an Indigenous-led board who all have been advocates and leaders within the United Nations or within what we call Indian country. Um, So we would be happy to be in community, have those conversations and, and find a way in which we might be able to show up for each other or provide some education. I love that. I love that. You're such an expert at these things because just the way you describe that, just the way you describe that invitation, I was like, yes, we're open for this conversation and to see if we can both show up for each other. I just, the way that we speak about things is so important, you know, and yeah, I just, I appreciate that. Okay. So, so we're shifting gears. I want to talk about the individual psychonaut, him or herself, Mm -hmm. their self. 
themselves. Anyway, I have personally experienced so much healing and growth through my experience um, with psychedelics generally, just a sort of psychedelic fun experience that suddenly turns into a powerful personal growth moment, to actually sitting in indigenous ceremonies. I, I sat with the Bwiti people in Gabon in Africa and did an initiation with Iboga in a very traditional setting. So I've personally benefited a lot. Someone like myself, what does reciprocity look like for me? You know, I do work in the psychedelic space in the sense that I do a psychedelic therapy podcast, and there's ways that I'm that I'm cultivating reciprocity in my professional life. But just in my personal healing journey, one thing that I want to get at here is that I think that reciprocity is part of the healing. Right? Mm -hmm. We take these medicines that allow us to glimpse these beatific visions that we are indeed all one. And in that, there's like the secret of the healing, which is mm -hmm. it's this isolation, this individual atomized lives that we lead that are part of this scourge of mental health illness. So reciprocity is not just a responsibility as the recipient of these transformational medicines, but also part of the healing itself. So from that perspective, I'm curious what your advice is to fellow psychonauts like myself who would like to be in deeper relationship and in deeper reciprocity with the lineages from which these powerful medicines have come. Yeah, but it's interesting though because you separated it out. You said on an individual way, how do I show reciprocity? I do it in like my business and my work, but you are all one. And so this conversation right here is reciprocity. Your willingness to invite me, an Afro-Indigenous voice of the Menominee United people, to share my knowledge, my teachings, my ways, to share my voice, that is reciprocity. You're using your power and your platform to bring another voice up. You're raising another voice up. And so I see that as reciprocity. And my advice to others is to look at the way in which you have power in your life. How you have power may be resources. Maybe you have more money. You have more access to money than most people. And so you show up for people by donating, um, by supporting your local grassroots indigenous organization or the tribes in which your, your house might be built on. I think that's a way in which we can really look at decolonizing. You know, decolonizing really is looking at the unbalanced power dynamics in which we have and how we can create harmony in that. And so I think that, again, going back to how you're showing up is right here in real time. This is real reciprocity. This is what it is. <laughs> well, and, and like real reciprocity, mm -hmm. it's this beautiful building of gifts back and forth. As I mentioned at the start of this conversation, this is for my audience, um, but it's also for me personally. Right, because it's know, relational, um, because it's not transactional. This is relational. And I think it's important to understand that reciprocity is relational and not transactional. We're having a conversation because it feels good for us. We learn from each other. We enjoy visiting with one another. And that's what indigenous peoples call it. We visit with one another. And, and from that, we're, we're giving and receiving. Um, but it's not, hey, Sutton, I want you to come on my platform because I want more numbers or more visibility. It's, hey, I enjoy your work. I enjoy your conversation. I enjoy you as a person. Let's have a dialogue and share it with community. That's reciprocity. And, well, and also, in addition to I enjoy your work, we need your work. Mm -hmm. Like specifically in this moment, we are in a window of time right now where the psychedelic movement can be different. Yeah. And it's always been different because psychedelics are weird, and that's what's it's great. <laughs> right. it, it's a weird it's a weird thing to do to just you know have visions and throw up, and it's a weird place. And and to have that be shoehorned into an extractive capitalist model, sanitized into a medical system that treats symptoms rather than people, we have a, a chance to change that. And so I think that. The work that you're doing is extraordinarily important. I love what Journey Collab is doing. Are there others in the space that you'd like to shout out to that people whose work we should be looking at, books that we might want to be reading, leaders that we want to be checking out? Can we talk about some of the people that are also holding this torch right now? 
Absolutely. I would say River Six Foundation have been in deep community with a lot of the different peyote people, whether it's the Native American church um, or different organizations on the grassroots level. They have really been doing some really great work to ensure that conservation and the protection of peyote is being supported. And so uh, they're working on the Indigenous Medicine Conservation Fund, which is really exciting. Miriam Volat and Cody Swift, they are just really great folks in the space. And I think if there are questions around what reciprocity means as it relates to peyote, then those are the conversations you should be having with those folks. And I would say, you know, a, a really great book to read right now would be Decolonizing Well. You already named the other book I would I would recommend, which is uh, Braiding Sweetgrass, but Decolonizing Well by Edgar Villanueva is really a beautiful book that really shows us how we can use money as medicine. And I really think that that is something that the space needs as so much wealth is coming in uh, to support these transformational medicines and technologies, how we can use that medicine for healing. So I would really encourage folks to really check out Edgar Villanueva, Decolonizing Wealth, and the work that the River Sticks Foundation uh, is doing. Beautiful. And for you, Sutton, how can we follow your work? As you know, your career just seems to be really taking off at the moment, as it very well should. You're definitely stepping into a role as one of the key leaders in the psychedelic movement writ large, which is wonderful, and you very much deserve that. How can we support you? Where can we follow you? Tell us all the places that we can participate in your journey. Absolutely. And no pun there. On the journey collab side, you can uh, follow us at <laughs> At Journey Collab, whether that's on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, on the Urban Indigenous Collective side, www.urbanindigenouscollective.org. And we're also on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at just at Urban Indigenous Collective. And then on the Shock Talk side, that's at Shock Talk on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, as well, all the social media platforms. And then just on the personal side, if you want to check me out on either Instagram or Twitter, it's just at Sutton.King. Well, and we'll have all of that in the show notes. Because that's a great thing. We got show notes. I don't know how many people look at the show notes. I don't know if how do, often the show out. notes are used. <laughs> Let's get connected in do. the virtual world and hopefully... I- <laughs> I even do t- I even do timestamps on my show notes, but I have no idea if anyone ever looks at that because I mean when I'm listening to a podcast, I don't look at. The- <laughs> but, you so, don't know. You, you, but anyway, it's yeah, there. Just in case, just in case, right? Better safe than sorry. Well, Sutton, it has been such a pleasure to get to know you through the collaboration of of this podcast, and and of course, as we've discussed, I'm excited to have you on the Psychedelic Therapy Podcast, the other podcast that I do, where we'll get even more into kind of the nitty gritty of, of the psychedelic movement and what that means for psychedelic therapists. So really looking forward to that. And yeah, I just, it's such an honor to be here with you today. And, and I, and I know my audience are, are deeply grateful for your wisdom and your sharing. So thank you so much. Well, again, I just want to thank you so much for having me on and just, you know, having this dialogue. It's so important to have these safe containers where we can really just talk about uh, the things that are on our hearts. And I think that's the part of the space that we need to keep, uh, that heart space. And so thank you for leading that. (sighs) Wonderful job. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for joining us for Life is a Festival. If you like the show, you can support it by sharing it with your friends, following it on Spotify, or reviewing it on iTunes. If you'd like to get more involved, you can join our Facebook group, Life is a Festival, where we talk about the show and you can suggest new guests. If you really liked the show and maybe want a little bit more, visit my digital tip jar at patreon slash lifeisafestival.com. Whatever you do, I hope today's podcast helped you make your life just a little bit more like a festival. And I'll see you on the dance floor.